Hey folks, welcome back. This is Elliot with the Pro Pros Almanac here today, and we are a podcast. I'm here with Andy. We're a podcast? Yes, we are a podcast. I thought we were just hanging out. No, we um, are hanging out, but we have microphones in our face, and we're supposed to be providing content for these smart, learned people who are trying to get some knowledge crammed into their brains without reading. Oh. Pretty pretty succinct? Yeah, I, I wish I had known that beforehand. How long have we been doing this? Um, I don't know. It feels like it's been a long time. How long have we been doing this, seriously? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think like nine months, ten months now. Cool. Awesome. So we're getting in the swing of things, I guess. It still feels kind of awkward, but we're, we're making it work, right? I'm just going to make eye contact you, with you for the rest of this episode. Well, if we do that, we're going to have to reposition the microphones. <laughs> or do we? Um, don't look at me. I'm looking. So anyway, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find us on Patreon. If you're enjoying uh, what we're doing here and you'd like to help us cover some of the costs of hosting these podcast episodes. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our Patreons. In terms of limited access or anything like that right now, knowledge is for everyone. But we have started up a Patreon-only miniseries called The Prologues, during which we will do some critiques on various ecological subject matters. We've also included clips of this entire series coming up on Patreon as well. So if you want to hear some stuff from all the episodes, go check it out. We've also released one episode that was asked by popular demand for public consumption. So that's a good place to check it out as well and see if you'd like to hear more. On top of this content, we've got stickers available and we're including some footage from Andy's farm, not my farm, putting the theory we're talking about into practice. So if you want to see what's going on over there, check out the Patreon. Any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. So go check us out on Patreon if you get a minute, please. We're also on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. And if this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to our first episode of the series and catching up since each episode springboards from the previous content or at least the beginning of this mini-series, which frames up the conversation that we're having. Today, we have a special guest, Mitch from Armed Margins. We have a great conversation discussing mutual aid, firearms, arming marginalized communities, and the experiences we've all had getting into the firearms culture and the challenges that come with that. Right. And it's not just about firearms. It's also where self-defense and mutual aid overlap the organization that's required in order to be successful in actually providing the help that's asked for, as opposed to, you know, just being ready to solve one problem. Everything looks like a nail when you're a hammer. Is that how the saying goes? Sure. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this conversation. It was really fun. And if you're interested in some of the things that Mitch is involved with, the links are included in episode notes. So Mitch, thanks so much for coming on to chat with us. I know this is an episode a lot of folks are really excited about because it's one of the two areas we get the most questions about is usually around this idea of gun access, specifically for people who haven't historically been exposed to guns. I know for myself personally, I didn't grow up in a gun family and in my late teens, early 20s, and I got interested in guns, getting into that culture was really challenging just because it's it's very, it seems impossible to get a good uh, handle on everything that's involved because it is a very um, passionate culture. First, tell me a little bit about Armed Margins yourself and what kind of drove you into this kind of line of work. 
Yeah. So first and foremost, you know, I'm an anti-fascist and anti-racist organizer, and I do a lot of organizing within my own community, but our margins kind of came out of a neighborhood organizing effort around community defense and wanting to equip people with the skills to be able to defend themselves. And then it kind of morphed into a neighborhood organizing project, uh, a mutual aid project. That kind of petered out though. Uh, the, the winter of the year was pretty tough and a lot of people um, just weren't able to keep it up, but I wanted to keep doing firearm education for folks. And that was preceded by a year of twice weekly firearm workshops that I would do out of this church that would allow me in their building and we could uh, do dry fire drills and, you know, just work at whatever pace people had. And it wasn't like a really well attended thing. You know, I think maybe within the year, I probably only trained about 50 people, but it was really in depth. And it also like incorporated all kinds of different histories, a completely different approach and like conceptualization of firearms. And I really more so like rooted all of our classes in like slave rebellion, indigenous resistance, that kind of stuff. And that's kind of like where we started out with. And I married that history with what we were trying to, to learn skill wise within the class. And so anyways, we did the neighborhood project and uh, it went strong for a while, but then people couldn't keep up. And so I wanted to keep it going. And so I felt like I wanted to do something that could scale a little bit. I, I wanted to train more than just 50 people. And that really meant legitimizing myself in some way. So going ahead and getting like instructor certification. And if I could, you know, in my state in North Carolina, you have to have a instructor teach you pistol skills and use of force law so that you can apply for your concealed carry. We don't have constitutional carry or anything like that. So you have to go through this class and it's a real choke point for people to be able to access the means of self-defense while they're out and about in the public, which is where most kind of attacks happen. So I wanted to get all of those things under my belts. And that's kind of where our margins came from. And I started going to some certification classes and stuff like that. And I had a background, not a background really, but some experience in competition. And that gave me the confidence to just go for it because I knew that I knew more than the average person. Sure. And uh, it turned out that during my instructor certification classes, I was better than most of the other people who were there, which was also surprising. Really thought that I, I'd be out of my league in a lot of places, but uh, it turns out I was right in there with the thick of them at the front of the pack. Not a lot of people shoot competition. That takes a certain type of person who knows they only know a little bit about shooting and wants to get better and challenge themselves to learning all the intricacies of shooting. That's something that I, I find myself in right now. I'm about to get into some competition shooting, hopefully, in the next couple of years. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it's a lot of fun. My take on guns and my introduction to guns is a lot different than Andy. I uh, grew up with a lot of toy guns and things like that. And at the time, a lot of parents didn't really buy toy guns for their kids because they didn't like that it implied violence. But I grew up with a BB gun. My brother grew up with a BB gun and stuff like that. And um, one thing that I remember teaching myself being disciplined and from a very young age was having correct trigger discipline and not keeping my finger on the trigger until nice. I was ready to shoot. And that's something that, you know, shooting is all about fundamentals. And that's something that's very basic. And our people who want to learn more about it 
I think that's something that's very common across the board, whether you're coming at this from the left, right, or just simple curiosity, is that if you start with the fundamentals and get those proper building blocks, uh, guns aren't as scary as they, they appear to be. Well, yeah, um, for me, uh, I totally agree. Like all the folks who are really good at shooting, let's just back to competition. If you want to be like a, a grandmaster and like USPSA or whatever, like a high level shooter, all that they're doing is just hours and hours and hours of dry fire practice with fundamentals. And right. they're, they're micro drilling fundamentals. So like they're breaking up the uh, their draw stroke into like three or four different drills and, and like getting really quick at each and every type of movement that they have to have and efficient and all that stuff. And so like getting good at guns is a lot of, it's just building off of fundamentals. Like you don't, uh, you can't really do extra complicated stuff unless you have mastered fundamentals. Um, and that's actually was part of the reason that I got into competition in the first place. It's, uh, it's the discipline that kind of piqued my interest too. Yeah. You know, I think this all speaks from my perspective that coming into guns without that, I don't want to call it ancestral knowledge because that's not really right, but like that, the having grown up around it and having that exposure where it's kind of uh, ingrained, like the gun culture and the, the language around guns. I think for a lot of people that come into it later in life, there's a, a sense of imposter syndrome because you don't have that exposure and you feel like you're constantly trying to catch up with everyone else. But I think your experiences kind of speak to the fact that that's a more of an illusion that people that have grown up around guns have uh, this extensive knowledge. So I, I imagine that a lot of the people that you work with probably have the same feeling that, you know, they understand how to shoot a gun, how to take a gun apart, clean it, all these different things. But it's still for a lot of people, I think, will feel like they don't know as much as the guy at the range that they, that's hooting and hollering and whatever uh, that seems to know what they're doing. How do you, I guess... Um, remove the shock factor yeah how do you how do you make people feel like it's an authentic like i am equal to the other people that grown up around guns their entire lives well i think when it comes to teaching uh it's less about like the depth of your credential and it's more about how well you can engage with people on a person-to-person -person basis so you know i'm sure all of us have had really terrible experiences in our schooling, but there's always that kind of idea of like one teacher or two that really impacted us. And it was because we had a personal connection with them, not necessarily because they mastered all the topics uh, better. They just know it better than you do. So they can bring you along. You know, that, I mean, the whole part, you had said that like a lot of my students might be intimidated by the gun at first. And I would say that it's almost all of my students. I'm very much catered to marginalized communities, right? Our margins. Uh, it's all about getting new shooters into the four. And I would say 80% of the folks that I teach are people who have never picked up a gun before. So it's really important to one, demystify the gun. And you can do that in all kinds of different ways. That's um, a great word for it is demystify. Yes. Yeah. Because there's, all, you know, there's almost this idea outside of gun culture that guns are like a, they're almost like a symbolic totem. They have a spirit to them. And like, there is not in a, a literal, like religious sense, but like they have a character, uh, having one in your house is just more dangerous. You know, it like changes the context of things where guns are. And let's be uh, honest in, in the United States, guns are pretty much worshipped. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what you have to do, I think, first is be front uh, upfront about that. 
And then to base everything in safety, because the, the thing that you really want people to do is handle things safely. And if you can find a safe or rather create a safe environment for folks, then they're able to engage with the material rather than feeling threatened the entire time. And I know for me, in my own education with firearms, that I didn't have the ability to go into queer spaces and learn about guns, which is part of why I made our margins was to afford that to folks. But when I was going to NRA courses or learning to be an instructor, all this stuff, you know, there was all kinds of gay jokes and anti-trans stuff and very heavily gendered things. And it always distracted me from being able to learn because I was like, the guy who's teaching this shit to me is a threat <laughs> to me. <laughs> like, you're the reason I'm armed up. <laughs> when you already have that bad relationship and you're trying to change it, or I don't even want to say again, bad, but like it has that- It's not uh, ideal. That the mythical effect of the gun um, as this thing that will somehow cause violence on its own that kind of pervades the conversation so much with people that are maybe anti-gun or they're not pro-gun, but they're just kind of like, I don't understand it. And, you know, trying to get them exposed to it. And then you have this guy who's, it causes all these sorts of problems and reinforces a lot of those negative stereotypes around the weapon itself, despite the fact that, that person has no relationship to that weapon, uh, which is uh, inherently problematic and pushes people away. Well, and I'd also say like a, just a, as another technique to getting people to have their own personal buy-in is to root, to use a, I guess, a, a movement word, use the praxis uh, of firearms, how it has been used historically, right? So the, the whole history that people usually come from in the Second Amendment community and all that stuff is the Second Amendment and the Constitution and the American Revolution and militias and all this shit. We're not basing ourselves in that stuff at all. We are trying to call on the history of slave rebellion, slave resistance, the resistance of Africans in the United States, uh, the Seminole Wars, Indian like insurrection, that, that kind of stuff. And firearms are involved in all of those things. And there is a huge history of firearm use within the Black Power movement, within uh, the Civil Rights movement, and all the way up, you know, from the time that guns were introduced to folks and minorities could get their hands on them, they were utilizing them to defend themselves. And that history is erased in a lot of places. And so I try and front, front in as much as I can and incorporate and weave in those histories so that folks aren't having to wrestle with a history that they think they could be playing into, because they could think that by by getting a concealed carry permit and by purchasing a gun that now they're buying into the second amendment. And the truth is that they're, they're not, I mean, it does depend on how you frame it in your mind, but the way that I approach the second or the way that I approach firearms really comes from a more human universal, right? A human right than it does as something that is codified in the second amendment. Um, so yeah, trying to position ourselves outside of that. Right. Cause it, from my standpoint, I went out and purchased my firearm after educating myself and saving up my money and doing all doing all that stuff. And I finally went out and got it. And then I realized, you know, if I truly, truly believe in having a firearm for from a necessity standpoint, then I would have not gone through the legal measures and still gotten my firearm anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I got in 2017, I was doxxed pretty 
horribly by uh, a local racist militia, a Nazi militia. Uh, and I live in a really rural, predominantly white area. I'm talking about the closest town to where I was only had a thousand people in it. And I had done an anti-Klan rally in the neighboring town, uh, Ashboro. I got the attention of this Nazi militia and uh, about three or four of their members lived within 20 to five minutes of my house. Awesome. Yeah, so they doxed me. They're active folks. They were actually present in uh, Charlottesville, Unite the Right, all this stuff. Um, they're led by a guy who used to be a contractor, I believe, in Afghanistan for a couple of tours. So they're serious folks. Anyways, that took me from just kind of plinking around to being like, holy shit, I really need to like know my stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of the reason I got in the competition was to pressure test my equipment and to perform under pressure, yep. uh, which was a pretty uncomfortable leap, but I felt like I needed to have that uh, to be able to meet the moment if it came. Crazy but, what a little timer does, huh? Yeah, crazy what a timer does. But for me, like uh, at that point, I had, I had a DUI that was active and I could not uh, get a concealed carry permit in North Carolina. If you have a DUI within, if, if you're within a three-year period of your conviction date, you're not allowed to have a concealed carry permit. Mm -hmm. But there were situations in which came across in which I felt that I needed to concealed carry uh, if I was going to remain safe mm -hmm. um, because these folks were at local stores and stuff like that. And I didn't want to have a firearm out and it'd be like, you know, whatever. I, you know, even though the the under the laws of North Carolina, I wasn't guaranteed to be able to carry legally. It doesn't mean that I was going to give up my right, uh, my human right to be able to defend myself as best I can. Uh, the state doesn't have the permission from me to take that away from me. So I decided to do what I needed to do. So I think this kind of points to, um, we're kind of like dancing around this concept of uh, the role of firearms as um, an equalizer and specifically how that plays into uh, anarchist practice and theory um do you view firearms as something that's are that are inherently anti-hierarchical um i wouldn't say that they're i mean i guess it just depends on who all is handling them yeah um, gosh i wish they were inherently anti-hierarchical uh, and then all the police would end up not being hierarchical if they had a whole bunch of <laughs> whatever but that's just not the case so i think that they can definitely work to they can definitely work to um the ends of non-hierarchy of abolishing hierarchy um but it can also at the same time that even the way that they are used within uh uh anti-authoritarian movements can also end up imbuing powers within people right because uh, like again like the the gun still has like this all of the symbology around it and mm -hmm. sometimes even within leftist movement culture the people who handle guns are like they get social clout from it and that can create all kinds mm -hmm. of different hierarchical dynamics that you don't want and so i think as long as folks are very conscious about the way in which they utilize employ and engage with firearms in which whatever context they find themselves in that they have to be very yeah conscious about making sure that they're not gaining social clout out of it that they are uh, especially like if you're a community defense group and you're doing security for like an event um, like i i never go in there and tell people what is going to happen always at the ask of whatever demonstrators are have brought us in and are asking for folks to help with security and then being realistic about what we can do and uh, 
what also we're not willing to do and just seeing, you know, framing out the sandbox that we can play in. Um, but what I'm not doing is saying, I have the guns, I'm going to lead a march, you guys can sit in the back, you know what I mean, like that. But there are plenty of calm deaf groups that do that kind of shit. And um, I don't like working with that stuff. Right. And, and I think you just perfectly um, sort of Define the line or at least pointed it out where that goes back to our first question about where do you go from being an imposter, like the people we were just talking about versus actually using the firearm as, as a tool for its intended purpose, which is what you're trying to do. And again, this comes down to basically being practical about it. Yeah. And I think it also speaks to uh, genuine mutual aid versus, again, being able to waver that power of being the people that can defend the other people over them. And, you know, I think that's, I feel like, especially on the internet, there's always thing, the new thing in the last couple of years has been like mutual aid requests. And a lot of times it's like, how do we, def how are we defining mutual aid? Because that's really important. And if we're not utilizing that term correctly, it can be more damaging. It doesn't mean you can't do those things if they're not mutual aid, but we don't want to water down those terms because it it takes away the ability of uh, communities to do things like what you're talking about. Right. So you're saying people are using mutual aid too like, lightly like to mean charity. like we need people to show up with guns? Uh, I think like just general charity, like be mutual aid requests when it's like somebody needs help. But that's, that's not necessarily what mutual aid is. Mutual aid is allowing people to tell you what they need versus just being like, we're going to give you stuff because you need help. Um, you know, they, they have some agency in that conversation. And a lot of these groups, I think that uh, Mitch is talking about, don't take that into consideration that those people know what they need better than the people showing up know what they need. Sure. And also, I think it's important too to, especially if you're doing like armed community defense work to also like be realistic about what you can do. You know, a lot of times, especially with folks who are not familiar with firearms, you know, they'll, they'll ask us to do some like SWAT like shit. And it's like, I can't. I can't, I can't, I literally like, I'm not here to like give up my life for nothing. Um, you know what I mean? Like people have some really ridiculous things. And also like in terms of mutual aid, there's also things that I'm looking for when, when I am offering myself up to do security, like I want support and help as well. Like I want to make sure that I have access to the legal infrastructure that y'all have put up. And if I get put in jail that y'all are going to help me bail out. Right. Uh, or, you know, whatever have you on the back end. It's really about using whatever high flashpoint there is as a opportunity to build actual long-term community rather than just a very transactional one way. I've asked you to do security, you do it, now you dip out and you're pieced out from the rest, you know, until whenever. Like it's about really making material relationships with people and entering into a much more in-depth conversation uh, and that's how that's how I like to do my work, especially when it's above ground stuff, right? Comdef isn't like all underground shady shit. It's all, you know, I'm, uh, we're trying to be accessible to the community because community defense really is ultimately about equipping the community to do its own security, right? Because we're alienated from the ability to perform those things uh, by the police, by the state, by the government and all its different various programs and, and its own specialization, which puts us at their whim, makes us vulnerable to their own political pressure, economic pressure, all that stuff. It's really about trying to build that capacity within the community itself. So even when I have like, you know, we'll do security or whatever, we'll fold in folks 
that are part of whatever the normal group is and like train them up in how to think through things, allow them to be part of de-escalation, all that, all that stuff. So that like they're being able to leave and do it themselves. Cause it's not sustainable for me to say, yeah, I'm going to drive two hours to every demonstration you have. I can't do that shit. You know? <laughs> and I, I think this kind of comes to this concept of community self-defense. I think people get a little confused if they're not, I guess, really entrenched in a lot of uh, leftism, whatever you want to call it, um, mm -hmm. and how how that's different than uh, just ha you know having a militia or like a, a police force that doesn't have a badge, um, how that's sure. different. So, you know, for one, just as to what we had talked about at the beginning, like we're rooting ourselves in a completely different history and approach, right? Human rights, uh, the history of rebellion and insurrection, not not the uh, history of the Second Amendment in the Constitution. So that's one way, right? Two, it's done in a way that is both anti-racist and anti-fascist, so it's actively in conversation with itself over the dynamics of race and gender and all of these other things that the state isn't really able to, to do uh, on itself. And it's, in fact, like there's are inherent pieces of policing that are white supremacist uh, and colonial. The other piece is that what really makes community defense different, and we've also already touched on it, is that it is performed by the community. Police uh, forces are outside forces who are disconnected from the broader community that they're in. They're paid to do a job, and they're mostly oriented towards protecting the status quo, property, and wealth. Uh, not necessarily uh, uh, crime prevention or helping the community that they're in. Uh, and they are also very limited in the way that they're allowed to respond to things. Community defense, on the other hand, and mutual aid through community defense is very flexible. It could look like showing up with firearms at a demonstration, or it could look like a food program, right? If there is hunger within your community, it makes sense to address food right? And we know that poverty is violence in a lot of ways. In the United States, that's it's justified through all kinds of different mechanisms. But community defense is saying this is not acceptable. We need to provide whatever those things are. And I like this concept, and I haven't really fleshed it out too much publicly, but I do like this concept of integrated community defense. And that is the idea that firearms, as you embed yourself more and more into the community become pretty opaque, right? It's a skill that is within the background and it's something that a community can uh, engage in if they need to, but there, it's so much broader than that because what you're doing is building skills and capacity and infrastructure and dual power by doing community defense. I think you're basically taking that mythos that surrounds the gun and you're trying to turn it into just another tool in the toolbox in order exactly. to help other people and help yourself. And I think that's very important. And I think that's why the work that you're doing is very important because I, I understand that it can be scary, scary coming from it from the outside with no knowledge and not having a safe place to learn this information. But once you do get started and hopefully it, it did for me anyway, personally, but once you do purchase your first firearm, you'll understand that there's a lot to learn. That, that information is very valuable and it will be valuable to you. Well, and also as you learn more and more about guns, you'll also see how niche its application is. It's that there's so few applications for it. It's really only for the most extreme of circumstances. It's a very specific tool. That's what I mean. 
It's yeah. a very specific tool and it, it's, it's scary, all of the implications around it and everything that those situations imply. It's very frightening and I can understand why that, that's a difficult thing to approach, but I think that's a very natural and it's the proper response to having, to have when you're learning about using this tool, right? And that's why it's important, I think, for you and I, we realize that to train using it under pressure, whether you're using that training um, for a competition or, you know, you want to be John Wick and you go and shoot at the range like that every weekend. Either way, you're, you're still practicing using the gun in the proper situation rather than just, you know, Elmer Fudd out there making a bunch of noise. <laughs> There's a reason too that like, you know, I had mentioned that class that I was doing twice a week and people were showing up. There's a reason that it turned into, um, it turned into neighborhood organizing. And that's because we're listening to what people's needs are, right? Community defense is about filling a need. And so what ended up coming out during our little free class sessions was that folks wanted to learn how to defend their homes, but they also wanted to address violence within their own neighborhoods, right. uh, break-ins and stuff like that. And then there was also other things like uh, getting the police out of neighbor, uh, out of whatever situation uh, is happening. So we would talk about suicide prevention. We would talk about setting up systems so that we would be able to respond in those circumstances uh, instead of people having to call the police, right? And so we're removing in a vector for violence from uh, all of these different situations by building that capacity within ourselves. And cre creating a, a network or a system that allows you to attack the root cause of the problem rather than needing the, the unfortunate tool to clean up. Yeah, exactly. At, at the end of the day, a lot of the reasons why people need firearms in terms of like local communities comes back to deeper problem. Yeah, deeper problems usually stemming from capitalism. Uh, that the economic anxiety drives a lot of issues like you were talking about burglaries and things like that. People aren't doing that for fun. They're doing it because they need things. If you're doing community self-defense well, it inevitably is going to seep into those other areas of the community because of the, the value and the ideology that comes with it. And I, you know, this kind of transitions really well. Um, I'd wanted to ask about the role of firearms in more modern history, more specifically like the civil disobedience movement in the 1950s and 60s, uh, and kind of how, you know, we keep talking about this idea that people are uncomfortable around firearms, or uh, they've just never really been exposed. But that that's really a modern phenomenon in the United States. Yeah. And um, how has the writing of history implicated firearms the way it is today? So I mean, I think a lot of the the history of firearms within the civil rights movement has been just completely erased and maligned, right? There's this whitewashing of uh, Martin Luther King and the words that he said, and it really erases a lot of his militancy. Mm -hmm. uh, not that he was uh, ever necessarily in favor of violence, but definitely towards the end of, of his life, he had uh, definitely much more embraced the idea of self-defense. Uh, and he was actually denied a pistol purchase permit um, uh, so, you know, he was also trying to to be armed, but there's also all, all kinds of different groups that were out there during the civil rights movement and through the 70s as well that armed themselves. Right. So you have like the missing and murdered children in Atlanta. They were mm -hmm. uh, black neighborhood groups that got together and started to do armed patrols. You have uh, the group like Deacons for Defense. Right. That's uh, uh, what is that like 1940s and 50s? They're out there with protesters making sure that they're that white nationalists, white 
white supremacists, the KKK, don't fuck around on people. Mm -hmm. Robert F. Williams, right, from Monroe, North Carolina, he did the same things that happened in Greensboro, right? There's the sit-in movement that was launched in Greensboro, North Carolina. Well, Robert F. Williams was doing that stuff, but him and a whole bunch of other uh, African veterans had gotten together and they armed themselves and then they did sit-ins. They stopped the KKK from doing what's called roll-throughs within their neighborhoods, uh, where they would, uh, the KKK would get these caravans and they would roll through neighborhoods and they would uh, beat and strip uh, black women and children and do all kinds of violence and intimidation. And in the neighborhood that Robert Williams was in, he said, fuck that. We're not, <laughs> you're not doing that shit anymore. And on more than a couple of occasions, they got into armed standoffs with not just white supremacists, but also the state. Right, the police. Uh, which was allowing that shit to happen. Uh, and that's, that's high level shit. And none of that, I grew up in North Carolina. I've lived my entire life. I've never lived in any other state. And I never knew about Robert F. Williams before. Right. Ever. I didn't find out about that until like three, four years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's buried, buried, buried. Um, so we're going back to the other question, what you're saying is guns are very anti-hierarchical. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they can be, for sure. <laughs> they totally are. You yeah. just you just went back on your shit, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we um one of our early episodes we talked about Scott Crow's book Setting Sights, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a essentially a history of uh, stories similar to that across mostly modern history, uh, and including up to how long ago is Katrina? Like twelve years ago now, fourteen shit. years ago. Yeah. Um, even you know, even during Katrina, the issues with again even police taking advantage of the situation and when um, communities organized and were able to defend themselves with weapons, specifically firearms, those threats, they didn't go away, but they were uh, manageable. And I think that speaks to the role firearms has even in communities that do believe in civil disobedience, that um, there's a reason why it's been erased from our history so quickly. And uh, like you said, uh, so thoroughly, you know, it's funny, I, when I graduated college, I wanted to be a teacher and I was going to be an English teacher. And the classroom my first year was next to the history classroom. So I started skimming through the history books. And obviously, four years from high school, you see it a little bit differently. And uh, I just remember reading the books and being like, I can't believe I read this and didn't think twice about a lot of this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's mind boggling the way history has become a pretzel when you read like a high school history book. Uh, my my son came home the other day with a, he's in second grade. He came home the other day with a, a history worksheet on uh, George Washington, who was a violent and like colonial piece of shit. Uh, he did a lot of surveying <laughs> in Ohio and his survey teams would be the tip of the spear in uh, doing indigenous genocide and reclaim, not reclaiming, claiming illegitimately land that was part of you know sovereign indigenous cultures. And they would do that by guns and killing just total war kind of shit, right? It wasn't just like killing their warriors. It was like killing their women and their children and all that shit. And George Washington was a part of it. But what his... History that was his practice for right. making America. What his history assignment was, was talking about how George Washington like did surveys into Ohio and was like really good at mapping and stuff. And it's like, well, okay, yeah, he made maps, but he also helped slaughter entire, you know, villages of people. So like, fuck that guy. <laughs> Lying by omission. That's yeah, how we yeah. learn history. I guess this kind of points to this idea of self-determination, not just being our self-defense, not just being about... um self-defense, but also this idea of self-determination and advocacy. I'm kind of curious about, I guess, how how you view that moving forward. 
uh, in this very weird climate that we exist within right now, where um, ever the left in particular has been is being so far gaslighted mm. in so many different directions between identity politics with like Kamala Harris and the right being you know obsessed with with this idea that Joe Biden's a commie and like all these weird factions that are kind of really just it seems like accelerating right now and kind of where where things go from here well i mean i think any movement that is serious about accomplishing its aims needs to have firearms as part of it because i think especially what we have seen within the last 4 years uh is that one is that reactionaries are going to partner up with the state in a counterinsurgency type role, right? So like this last summer, we had uh, all these George Floyd uprisings. And the way that we saw reactionaries in the state partner up was to uh, in formal state sanctioned ways and informal ways, partnership with each other so that they could crush protests and dissent. Um, right. I mean, that I mean, that whole thing manifested and culminated within Kyle Rittenhouse uh, shooting and killing three people, four people, killing two and injuring another. So, you know, like that was an informal partnership that developed between reactionaries uh, on the right wing, on the far right, uh, as well as the state allowing them to exist in that space in a completely different way. Um, than they would with anybody who's on the left, right? And we also saw that in the January 6th uprising. I, I was losing my mind watching the live streams, being like, what the fuck? Like, there's nothing happening to these people at all. I have literally engendered worse abuse from the police by doing a permitted march that took the street. You know what I right. mean? Like, they, not they took overrunning the, fed- the they took the federal building. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I mean, the handwriting, the writing was on the wall with this, with the the Bundys. What four years ago, five years ago? Yeah, now? that keeps like, coming up. Yeah, <laughs> they took over another federal building. Yeah, yeah, they did another. And and they, they had a camp, they had a camp out for like a week. Well, and and, and so, they got to like, walk. They got they got to walk away without getting riddled by bullets. Like yeah, it's crazy. Right. Right. Well, and they also, you know, there were people who were part of the occupations that had uh, gotten their charges dropped. Uh, and I- I'm pretty sure, right, there was Trump had uh, not pardoned excuse, somebody. Pardon, he pardon, pardon, yeah, didn't yeah. Trump pardon a couple of folks that were involved in the Malher um, occupation? I'm pretty sure that that was something that Trump did. But um, that's neat. anyways, if it's fine, if we have a movement that is like actually serious about defunding the police or abolishing the police, you can't not have uh, like some type of security embedded into whatever context you're creating on a, like a geospatial level, because there will be um, folks, reactionaries who want to attack you in a very serious physical way. Right. Uh, and on top of that, the state is not going to abandon those, those places, but there is a very real, there's a, there's absolutely a reality where, firearms can act as a deterrent to really aggressive police action because it changes once it's on the playing field, it changes the calculus and the, yeah, the risk calculation that folks have to make. That doesn't mean that we need to be quick to go to guns or anything like that. I'm just saying that that being part of any, it needs to be part of any serious movement that's serious about actually accomplishing its goals. Like what the fuck are we doing? If (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, I I mean, I know folks that are just doing like statue protests and stuff, which is not really even aimed at toppling the state or creating a new society or whatever. It's just about removing a Confederate statue. And those people are getting death threats, legitimate threats being followed to their homes under state surveillance, all kinds of different stuff. 
uh, if we're serious about doing anything that's on a more grand scale than just removing r- objectively racist statues from our public spaces, we have to have the ability within ourselves uh, to defend ourselves. Right. Um, yeah, I just can't not be there. So, I mean, the way that I see it going into the future is now is the time to build skills. I think January 6th, we really saw how close we could come to uh, uh, an authoritarian, autocratic, fascist regime that steals an election. Uh, and not that we aren't already in a type of like authoritarian context, but I do think it would have ramped up a significant degree where the social consequence for for Nazis and uh, state, uh, you know, rogue state agents that just really fucking hate people and are itching and ready to get out there and start genociding motherfuckers. Like we have got to be able to be prepared to answer those things in in a way that's a little bit got some more teeth than just like marching on the interstate. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Things are accelerating and, this- and we need to accelerate faster than those things in terms of being prepared because well, we're not where we should be as it is. The majority, right. Yeah, the majority I, I, I is think, not. Like, I was going to say, this brings up two points for me. Yes, it, it this the past four, eight years has showed people that, you know, if they are going to educate themselves on self-defense and being able to help themselves and others, there there is a place where they need to start. And I don't think a firearm is it. But I do think if you're trying to encompass everything of what you need to take care of yourself and help your community, it is going to come up at some point. And and that is important to acknowledge. And the second part is, is I know none of this is rooted in the Second Amendment where it comes from, but we do at some point have to acknowledge the Second Amendment is a thing. And after getting a gun, seeing what they're trying to do I live in Massachusetts currently, and what they're trying to do for gun laws across the United States is make the gun laws like Massachusetts for everybody, and I don't Mm. necessarily think that's a good thing, but I think you would have to own a gun in order to understand all of the ins and outs of what I mean by saying that, and I do think there is a correct way to – and I don't even want to tackle this this topic of gun legislation, but I do think there is a way to approach it that isn't being addressed because, like you were saying, a minority of people aren't educated on these firearms in the first place, and they're trying to legislate out the problem without actually getting to the root cause of it. Yeah. So like, yeah, on gun legislation, you know, so first the second amendment, you know, we're not basing ourselves in it, but it is the context in which we can engage with firearms within the United States. It allows you to, to, which is very important. Right. 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 It's going to determine a lot of the ways, right. I'm somebody who knows the law very well around use of force and like where guns can and cannot be and all that stuff. And Mm -hmm. the second amendment and the way that it's legislated per state is something that you absolutely need to know Mm -hmm. and be familiar with if you're going to carry and all that stuff, because you don't want to end up in jail for the rest of your life. Or, Um, Or for being, uh, ignorant you, you don't get a pass for not knowing right. yeah <laughs> exactly um but you, you know when it comes to uh firearm legislation i think this is something that a lot of folks on the left are also very unfamiliar with is that uh liberal gun control progressive gun control is absolutely uh a huge point of racism being enacted within the united states right. where uh, there's absolutely disproportionate enforcement in terms of race and gender and colonized versus uncolonized and all that stuff when it comes to gun control. Um, and you talk about the ways in which police justify their militarized presence within certain neighborhoods. 
that absolutely is going to contour around an argument of guns by just acquiescing and like giving up the space and saying that gun control is, you know, sensible gun control, common sense gun control is going to be the thing that reduces violence or whatever. One, I don't buy it at all because it's going to end up in more enforcement programs, which is going to further marginalize and uh, put folks in danger. And two, if you do really want to uh, tamp down on gun violence, whether that be suicide, whether that be gang violence, whether that be violence around drugs, domestic violence, all those things, you have to build dual power and mutual aid. Mm -hmm. Um, The solutions are not within uh, the government to be able to regulate these things out of existence. You have to be able to address white supremacy and economics and power and control within the communities that these kind of things are happening. They're not in the fucking gun either. Right. But you also mentioned, you know, how they're trying to make, you know, gun control the United States over in the same way that they're doing in your state. Uh, You said Massachusetts, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's also one of the ways in which gun control will be enacted is that it will be on a state level. I don't, I don't have a lot of faith or, or rather, I usually laugh at federal legislation around firearms because it has such a small, slim chance of passing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are executive orders and stuff like that, but like stuff that's got to go through Senate and Congress and get signed by the president, I just don't see those as too much of a threat. I do, however, see state legislators taking things piecemeal, like how California has done in the way that they have modified what kind of handle you are able to have, magazine capacity, all that stuff. It's much easier for states that have blue representation to piecemeal um, make firearms more difficult to access. So I I think this kind of comes back to this, uh, I guess, final question I really had for you. While there aren't a lot of organizations like what you're doing, for people that are listening and are curious and are like, I, I want to make the plunge, um, where what do you recommend for resources in terms of uh, whether it's specific classes, online classes, uh, YouTube, whatever, places that you feel like are good and also present a, a similar lens or at least a, maybe a, a, a nonpartisan lens? on the subject matter? So a few things. I wish I had a list in front of me. I didn't prepare one. Um, And you know what? By the time that y'all air this episode, I will have a page on rmargins.com that uh, indexes all of the leftist inclusive um, firearm instruction and stores uh, that I can. Um, But there is quite a few things on social media. Um, There's Yellow Peril, which is a group of uh, the AAPI community. Uh, that have gotten together and do firearm advice and tradings and videos. They do that on Instagram. Of course, there's Arm Margins. I have a pot, Arm Margins just is producing a podcast called the Red Dot District, and we talk about firearms pretty extensively um, on that. I like it. Um, yeah. There's also uh, Tactical Girl- Girlfriend. That's a YouTuber. Um, they're fantastic. Uh, rather, she's fantastic. And then there are all kinds of different companies out there. I'd encourage folks for like wanting to get training for you to check out the Liberal Gun Club. Um, they're one of the few national organizations that have a much more progressive bent. Uh, and if you're a radical, they're not unfriendly to you. I certainly don't agree with plenty of their politics, but it's also not like a hostile space to be in. And I'm an instructor within the Liberal Gun Club network where they have some pretty high level folks and they also offer classes. Uh, And I'm pretty sure that almost every state uh, in the union has a Liberal Gun Club 
chapter. Uh, and then I would also encourage you to look at different online uh, communities. I'm sure that there are plenty of things on Reddit. I know on Facebook that I have found some uh, very small groups where there's a mix of really experienced people with unexperienced people. And if you, if it can o- overcome the hurdles of, uh, you know, embedded misogyny and like, like worshiping the gun and stuff like that, which happens in leftist spaces. Uh, if you can find a group though, that doesn't do that, those can end up being very highly educational and beneficial spaces. I'm not going to give out the name of the few that I'm a part of just because I'm going to keep it on, on lock. Yeah, I don't want to ruin it. I got you. I got <laughs> yeah. you. Um, but uh, that, it, and you know, if, if you can, you know, when it comes to like threat indexing or like figuring out, you know, who is a threat to, to you in a learning space, if you are able though to stomach being in some reactionary spaces and you can do so safely, right? Listeners can't look at me because this is audio, but I very much present like a white male, even though I'm non-binary. I'm able to pass within those contexts and extract the information that I want from it and bring it back to people. Um, So if you're listening and you actually have the ability to do that safely, then do so. Uh, It's a huge help to people. And again, you don't have to be like this level 10 expert on everything. Like I started teaching other people uh, at level one when I was on like level like three or four Mm -hmm. or whatever. And then you just bring people up and you're going to continually get better. And it's okay to not be a master at everything. You know, I've been shooting for four years now, total total of four years. Um, That's all the time that I've spent. And I have improved dramatically. And most of it has been self-taught. But uh, it's possible to get a good high degree of skill or be intermediate in skill and Mm -hmm. teach people at the beginner level. That is okay to do. As long as you can be safe. The safety is the thing that you need to have on lock before you start teaching other folks. Um, But once you've got that down, start spreading it around. It's knowledge that our community really needs. Sure. And also, I I would like to say, I don't want to scare people. None of the adverse, um, not everybody who goes to teach those classes and learn in those classes are scary people who are going to attack you. Um, I I don't think that's an expectation because I've been surprised. Um, Again, here learning in Massachusetts, all of the classes I went to is predominantly white males. But we went to that bow hunting class. Um, there was, and, yeah, yeah, and it was like all six year old white dudes. Right, it was people with a bunch of time, and they're like, oh, "I'm gonna get into this hobby now that I have time." Now, you know, there was never, I don't know, I never felt like I, I was in a hostile learning environment. I feel like everybody was there to learn, and I, I feel like that's yeah. something that you should expect going into it. Everybody is at a learn to shoot class because they're there to learn to shoot. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's not. Yeah. They're they're not taking it like as experts to make fun of you know novice shooters or anything like that. So if you are interested, don't be scared to go out and reach out and and educate yeah. yourself. Unfortunately, most um, classes are NRA sponsored with you know that that bent. So that it just it is what it is um, for now at least. Right. People. Well, and I, I'll plug this too. Um, not to like plug my shit too hard, but. No, do it. That's why. Uh, that's why we have microphones, bro. Yeah. Let's do. That's why we asked you. <laughs> um, our margins. I have it set up so that you can do consultations with me. So we have thirty-minute and one-hour blocks. I never. I. I have a an ask for a you know a price for each time, but I never let money get in the way. Our margins is set up so that uh, I have a, a Patreon for our margins, so that 
all of the money from that Patreon, and it's about $200 a month, gets to go towards giving people free classes, free consultations or whatever if they can't afford it or if they're actively under threat. Yep. Um, so, you know, last year we gave out several thousand dollars worth of, of class uh, and private instruction and home visits to yep. help people, you know, get their shit set up and then like online consultations. So like, if you need help figuring out the gun that you need, or if you want to figure out some dry fire drills, if you need me to look at your grip, if you want to become a firearm instructor and need some inside baseball on like yep. what that actually looks like on the back end and expectations, like y'all, I can in 30 minutes to an hour, we can chomp through a whole lot of information. That's very yeah. valuable and that's very generous what you're doing because this information does have a price tag to it. Um, so there is a bit of gatekeeping from it because there's that economic tag on it. Like it, yeah. it's and, and that's all the, that's really going to happen with future legislation, I think, to right. go back to that. like Right. And, keep, and that's what keeps yours rooted in mutual aid because if you're willing to share that information and provide it for people because, you know, like you said, it, it, it is a human right. Um, I think that is what differentiates, you know, uh, community self-defense from policing. Yeah. And I mean, over the last year, you know, I've, I've gotten so many calls on like, Hey, I've gotten this threat. I've been mailed a letter, been mailed, uh, or gotten emails or whatever that have like threatened my life and the life of my children or my husband or whatever have you. And I've gone out and done like home visits and we talk about home security plans and they're very in-depth. Mm -hmm. Um, and like deep dives into doing home defense, self-defense out in the community, anti-surveillance, all this other shit. The, the, the people who that happens to a whole lot don't have the economic means. I mean, if I wanted to charge for this shit, it could be like $500 worth of my time that I'm putting into this. But that's where that Patreon comes in because I'm able to gift it out. The more I have within the Patreon, the more that I can start to give out to people. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, nobody, nobody who's a firearm instructor, at least on the left is like making bank on this shit. You know, I work full time doing our margin stuff. And I think I pulled in 10 grand last year. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's not like a whole lot of money. You're, um, you're working on our tagline, which is knowledge is for everyone. So. Right, exactly. And so again, like the more mutual aid that's out there, the more you're able to give this stuff to folks. And um, that's what ultimately what we want. And also like, usually People don't have no problem paying, especially if you do shit on the sliding scale. All of my classes are between $0 and $100. And I'm pretty clear about within my signup page, whether you know you can pay $0 and I mean it, or you can pay $100. Most people opt to pay $100. Sure. And that enables me to continue to do this at scale, um, which is really what I wanted. Because they understand, you know, hopefully at that point, they're not paying you for their service, but they're sort of paying it forward because they, they do understand the information is valuable and there might not be people who are in the position where they can pay for it, but they still need the information. Yep. Exactly. So that's a great support system. And yeah, uh, it proves that it's not about the price tag necessarily. Right. Uh, and that people um, value knowledge and whatever, a, a good, whatever it might be, whether it's a class or an item. Uh, and people aren't afraid to pay for it as long as they feel like it's appropriate. Uh, and, and I think this is something people appreciate and understand the value of. Yeah. So, uh, Mitch, I appreciate it. It was a really interesting conversation. Yeah. And, and thank you for your time. Um, yeah. Keep up the yeah. great work. I definitely will use that as a reference point. 
uh, for anybody who is willing to learn. And I'll, I'll add one last thing. And when it comes to ad- advice, like uh, getting a consult or, or even just talking to me on the phone or whatever, I'm an open book on stuff, but I will help people with thinking through setting up security for community defense or event security or whatever. You know, I've been doing it for the last four years. It's not just about, uh, you know, guns. All of that is on use of force. All of that is on like staying within the law. All Mm -hmm. of that is about like how to relate to, you know, dynamics where there's all kinds of different personalities and political streams and currents and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, those are some of my, my most fun things that I do through our margins is being able to help people think through some really dynamic situations so that they have better solutions to, you know, whatever their concerns or threats are. I got you. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Yeah, Yeah, it was good. I appreciate y'all having me on. Thank you. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes, which heavily impacts our outreach to new listeners and helps us bring on more new, exciting guests. We always appreciate your support, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening. This is the Poor Proles Almanac.